You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's great! It's Jeff McLarge. I am definitely a frosted flake. Yes, <laughs> I am great. I've been, I've been called worse by much better than you, so there. How you doing? How am I doing? Well, funny you should ask. Funny story time. Last October, for my birthday, my brother uh, got me a drone. Yes. You know, nothing too extravagant, just, you know, like a starter, a starter drone. And the first thing I did was smash it to my house and break it. Because <laughs> I am, one, clumsy, and two, I don't want to be bothered reading instructions. I just right. want to play, you know. And, yeah, I crashed into my house and broke it, like, day one. Right. So I bought... Another one, and I got it off of Woot, Woot.com, and okay, it was a, it was slightly, uh, you know, a, a slightly more upgrade than the one that my brother had bought, mm-hmm. and uh, crashed that one a couple of times too. And I ended up buying a bunch of like accessories for it, like replacement propellers, because I know I'm gonna piss right through them, an extra battery, so on and so forth. So right. that one right out of the box was, I think, like $150, which is still really cheap for a drone. Those things get yeah. you know really expensive really fast. Really fast, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I ended up spending like $200 on it, you know, you know all, all being said. And, yeah, right, I get you. And, you know, they're particular. They're like for the low-end models like that, they're not very wind-resistant. So, so if you go out there to try to fly it in the wind, it's going to go into the next neighborhood. So right. I, I never really got to use it too much. I've used it a few times. I brought it out to the haunted house, and I got some overhead shots of that. I brought it over to your house a couple of weeks ago. That was fun. Right. Yeah, so, that was fun. That yeah. was very cool. And then I was working at a renaissance fair out in New Hampshire. I did some overhead shots of that too, right? You know what the best part was? When you showed it to me at my house, Yeah. was I went back and watched the video that you took. Yep. And I realized that I could inspect my roof and I'm not missing any shingles. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the first time I've ever seen that part of my roof on my house and I've lived here almost 10 years. Nice. Yeah. Yes. You saved me the cost of a guy coming out to go, no, your roof looks good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe I can do that again in the near future because yesterday was pretty nice and I rode my bike to work. And then when I got out of work, I rode my bike to the gym. And then when I got out of the gym, I rode my bike home. And then it was really nice out. So I just wanted to relax. And, you know, since I've been either exercising or working all day, I just wanted to sit in my backyard and relax. And, uh, you know, while my supper was cooking in the, uh, in the toaster oven thing. So I was just flying it around the backyard, maybe, you know, 10 feet off the ground. And then 
Uh, the last time I flew it in my backyard, the trees weren't really full, but now they're really full, you know? So I wanted to go high above the tree line just to see everything. I got it up at about maybe 40 or 50 feet in the air, and then wow. I don't know what happened. I This has happened to me before, but this time it happened from much higher. Uh, 50 feet, and the propellers just said, Oh, I'm going to shut off now. And the thing just dropped like a rock out of the sky and just like crashed into pieces in my backyard. Oh. So as I was saying, I have a really expensive hobby now with drones. So I'm researching another drone. I went up from, we'll say, under $100 to about $200. The ones I'm looking at now is probably going to cost me about $400. Oh, man. That way, when I break that one, I can buy the nice thousand dollar drone, <laughs> <laughs> or the one that's heavy enough to not, uh, you know, not get blown around at least. And yeah, well, the one I'm looking at now does have wind resistance, mm-hmm. and it's actually got an attachment that's like an extra fifty dollars. It's got like object detection, so I won't smash into my house like I did with the first drone. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a fun but expensive hobby. Yes. Now, I have a friend, Anthony, he's also in the haunted house thing, and he's got a drone, but he says he's terrified to fly it. I was like, well, you know, whenever I got my drone, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go flying and we can, you know. Maybe, we'll crash into each other. Yeah, maybe you won't be so nervous <laughs> if you get somebody else around, we could right, crash we'll, into each other. So I'm going to guess that the one he bought is probably one of those $2,000 ones. Yeah, I think once they get to a certain size, like you need a license to fly them, right? Because they can go and they can end up in airspace and stuff. Right. Yeah, I think it's anything over a pound or something like that. Or, I mean, I, I don't plan on flying mine up into the the stratosphere, so, mm-hmm. um, it's not red. The, the, I didn't, the mine was too small to register anyway. But even yeah. still, and I live like near a regional airport, so I do have to be a little careful. But even still, fifty feet isn't going to bother anybody. No, no, no. I've flown kites higher than that. Right, yeah. And birds fly higher than that. And it's, I mean, I saw the drone. It's smaller than crows, so. All right, before we get the show proper started, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Uh, A little bit of a follow-up question from last week. This week's trivia question is, who has had the most consecutive number one albums? Last week, we were talking about singles. This week, yes. who has had the most number one uh, consecutive number one albums? Consecutive number one albums, huh? I have a guess, but I don't know that they have that many albums to be the most <laughs> consecutive number one albums. So there's that, huh? We'll have to be on a loop. That's a good question. All right. Well, at the end of the show, I'll give you an answer. All right. But this is going to be the week beginning the fire cracking Fourth of July. Being the patriot that I am, I'm going to let you go for us. Well, I appreciate that. July 4th, 1970. Casey Kasem's American Top 40 debuts on LA radio. And it does not take long for that show to get syndicated across the United States, ultimately become the soundtrack to my Sunday morning and early afternoons for the entirety of my childhood. Yep. Um, yeah, same here. Uh, that was a Sunday tradition for my friend Carolyn and I, where we would hang out in... You know, her at her house, listening to American Top 40 with Casey Kasem. And, like, just being glued to it. We've listened to the whole show every week. 
Yep, every every week, and it had commercials kind of built into it, and long distance dedications and all that stuff. It's it's where I learned my love of like popular music, and I got exposed to all different types of music across the spectrum, from soul to disco to country to rock and roll to arena rock to prog rock, even a little bit here and there, to vocal stuff to weird old croony things to even instrumentals. It was all there. All there every week and consistently hosted by, you know, the the man with the most soothing voice in radio. Also, who would go on to become like the voice of Robin and the Super Friends and uh, Shaggy on uh, Scooby-Doo, Casey Kasem. Yep. So that voice is a voice that I'm going to hear that voice like the I'm sure the day I die of old age, I'll be here. Casey Kasem go like, well, it looks like Jeff's ready to make the crossover into this <laughs> the long distance dedication in the sky. And it's going to sound like him because I've heard his voice a zillion million times since I was a kid. And now here's Apple with knowing me, knowing you. <laughs> And this dedication comes from a man named Bob, and his dog has recently been run over by a car. I just listen. I don't know if you. I just heard that little bit from Casey Kasem, the famous bit. Casey Kasem throwing an absolute hissy fit. <laughs> right when they're going for the long distance dedication about a dead dog named Snuggles yeah. to you two or from you two. That's if you should all go out there and seek that out. You can find it on YouTube. Just like. Casey Kasem goes nuts. Um, it's very funny. The, the thing with him is, you know, he always made, no matter what music it was, and some of the music on, that hits the top of the charts here in the States, it's not good. You've listened to the end of this show, right, audience? <laughs> and you've heard us talk about a lot of the songs that we've heard on American Top 40, and Casey Kasem is always out there like, you know, it's always great to hear something from a Scandinavian winner of a nationwide song contest. <laughs> like, oh, that's a bad, that's a bad opening right there. <laughs> he had... He had absolutely the blackest hair. He did, yeah. And then it was also kind of like contrasted with his much taller than he was wife, who was like a platinum blonde. Yeah, Jean, right? Yeah. Jean Those Kaysen. two did not look right together. They were a power couple, though. They were together for like 20-some-odd years until oh, yeah. I think yeah, yeah. until he passed away. The, the show itself drew all of its its numbers. The reason it had a, a show at all is it drew all the numbers from Billboard's record charts, which determined which records were sold at participating record stores across the country. So it was being built with live data right up until Saturday, the Saturday before the show. Can you imagine the sort of effort that had to go into that? That last, like, two days as they're calculating all the numbers to try and figure out what the top 40 songs are, what right. what enters the thing and what leaves and what are you going to talk about? And there are going to be times where you have to talk about the same song like nine weeks in a row yeah. as it's moving its way up and, down, up and down the charts. Trust me. I mean, I record a podcast with you, uh, you know, every week. I know all the work that goes into this. <laughs> yes, yes. yes uh, speaking of knowing all the work that goes into stuff, my next day here, July the 5th is a, one of our weird holidays, work a holiday day. That's me. Uh, so, so let me tell you, Bill. I think you should celebrate Workaholics Day this year by taking the day on and just go to work and and work an extra two hours. Uh, actually, my company, uh, my main 40-hour job is on shutdown this week. We are not open this week, and, and I, I don't know where to put my hands. I don't know what to do with myself. I literally will work myself to death if I don't watch myself. I always have to be doing something. I don't like sitting still. You know, like whenever I watch a movie, I'm usually doing something else at the same time. 
Like I'll be working. I, I don't know. I just have to do something. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. You know where I think that comes from? Because I have that same problem, and I work I work an office job, but I can't sit still either. I'm constantly doing something. I'm constantly picking up projects when I'm not in my cube or you know teaching a class online or whatever. Right. You're gonna laugh, but I think that comes from Mr. Warrington, because I can hear him. <laughs> What's going on over there? All right, like, hold on. Every time you stop doing anything, let's let's explain. Mr. Warrington was our <laughs> shop teacher. He was our yes, shop. yeah, yeah. He didn't he didn't let you sit still. Exactly. No, nope. So we learned to go for, to change jobs together and to use that time in between steps to do something else. Right. That's like that's a skill. <laughs> it's a skill that you learn if you're in the right environment at the right age. And, and we were. Our, our machine shop, uh, for those of you who are somehow, strangely enough, new to the show, Bill and I went to the same high school. We've been friends since junior year, yep. and we were in the same shop, uh, machine shop. And we really did learn how to make that time efficient and effective. And that's a holdover from, you know, the sort of industrial revolution and the the birth of, of factory life, where you had to be efficient while you were standing there doing your job. Otherwise... This stuff wouldn't get done. So I, I think I've said this before when we were talking about video games uh, last year on video game day is I absolutely, I have to play video games for my mental health because right. I am a workaholic and I will work myself to death if I don't find a way to sit down and relax. And But I have to do something, you know, and now I don't have a drone so <laughs> <laughs> for me unless it's less video games and more books and records but I again I sit there and I'll and I have to be doing something as well and I'm constantly either reading or writing or fiddling with something or something yeah and that's probably why I don't read a lot of books is because it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't take up enough of my time I can't read the book and do something else right <laughs> even at my real job even at work I'm, you know, I'm allowed to have a Bluetooth earpiece and all that, and I listen to podcasts. I do a lot of the show notes at work. Yeah, I'm always consolidating my time. Yep. Whenever I retire at 65, it's going to be murder. I don't know what I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> You're just going to keep going back to work. You'll be like uh, Milton in office space. Like, <laughs> he just keeps coming in. <laughs> All right, what do we have for the 6th? For July 6th, 2003, in what may be determined to be the greatest cosmic mistake in the history of humanity <laughs> on Earth, a 70 meter, the 70-meter 70 Eupatoria uh, planetary radar system is used to send a message, a METI message, which is us to potential extraterrestrial visitors, to five different stars, HIP 4872, HD 245409, 55 Cancri, HD 10307, and 40, 47 Ursa Majoris. The signals contain, uh, hi, this is Earth, how are you? Hey, this is where you can find us, and probably, like, what are you wearing? Also, you can probably take us <laughs> over if you come right now. Uh, the signals are going to arrive at their destinations beginning in 2036. So it'll be 2036, May of uh, 2040, May of 2044, September of 2044, and then 2049. At any point in between here and there, those could be intercepted and decoded by some other race that has similar technology that we do and similar biology that we do and similar understanding of how language works that we do and then decide to come and invade us and enslave us and put us in their underground sugar mines. Thanks a lot, SETI. They're probably going to get picked up by the same people that picked up Voyager 2. And it's going to be like, oh, these assholes again? Yeah. 
Oh, stay away from that. It's like that's a, we're the planet that people like the space aliens like lock their windows or their doors as they drive by. No, it's the, no, it's the equivalent of blocking us on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> they keep asking for nudes. Weird. <laughs> they send nudes, right? Like the picture of the uh, the Michelangelo guy and girl in the on the the, the uh, on Voyager two. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's all that smut. Like we don't even know them yet. So, talk about desperate. It it's kind of cool in that sort of. We're willing to gamble that someone out there is listening, which I, as a science fiction writer, believe that that's the very definition of optimism. Um, And two, it's an interesting exercise to see if there is a result, what it would be. Well, if the result happens, it's going to put you out of business. By the time it gets to there in 2036 and they turn around and send something back, assuming they do, once they decode it, we're talking, so it starts in 2003, that's 33 years, and it's... Talking I got 33 years to go, so... I was talking more of the plural you, but okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, by then, uh, I'll, let, I'll let my kids deal with the aliens. I got news for you because many years earlier, apparently they sent a message first. Because oh. July 7th, 1947, <laughs> Major Jesse Marcel and head of the Roswell... See where this is going? The Roswell Army Counterintelligence Corps... Uh, his name was Sheldon Cavett. Go to William Mac Brazel. They go to his his crib and retrieve what they believe is to be debris from a UFO crash. Yes, right. the the uh, oft speculated Roswell UFO incident uh, happened on July seventh, nineteen forty seven. The following day, a report would reappear in the Roswell Daily Record, announcing that RAAF. Captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. So that happened. Yes. I've watched a hundred or so documentaries on the Roswell incident, and all of them sort of range, there's a spectrum of them, and they range between generalized, you know, inquiry and history on one side all the way to the other side, which is like space aliens are on Earth and they live underground and we're all going to be working in the underground sugar mines. You know what I mean? It ranges all the way from like Penn Jillette to Giorgio, basically. <laughs> yeah, and Giorgio Zucaros falls somewhere in the middle compared to some of the other people that are, that are here. He's one of the moderate guys who's like, eh, maybe they wanted to build pyramids. That's where he sort of ends at Roswell, yeah. where other guys are like, they come to my house and they touch my dog, you know? They gave, um, me, a, they gave me some chiclets. Came to buy, they borrowed $5. They said, here's the nude you wanted. Stop, stop sending us messages. One point or one thing I want to get across about this is... What happens in the vernacular, in our vocabulary, we confuse the terms UFO and flying saucer together. Yes. They're not the same thing. Nope. Like, remember a couple of years ago, I think it was like two years ago, there was like big excitement, like, the government uh, admitted that there's UFOs. It's like, yeah, no kidding. Because a UFO means unidentified flying object. It's like, yeah, we saw something, we don't know what it is. It doesn't mean it's right. a freaking flying saucer. Well, I mean, technically, when you get right down to it, if I look up at the sky and I go, huh, it looks like a plane, but I don't know what kind of plane it is. Technically, that for me is a UFO because I can't identify. So I don't know if it's a Boeing or an Airbus or a Cessna or what. There's a crow in my neighborhood that considers my drone to be a UFO, okay? (laughs) Yes. And then it Uh, crashed in Roswell. Well, I mean, the term UFO comes from, I'm not sure if it's the First World War or the Second World War, but it was whatever didn't look like the silhouette on the picture to identify an enemy plane. Yeah. 
And you'd be like, I don't know what that is. That's an unidentified flying. Something is flying in from somewhere, and maybe the RAF should go shoot it down. That's where that, the acronym comes from. I think what happened with Jesse Marcel and the ranch is that the rancher said, like, hey, something fell on my property. I don't know what the hell it is. And he goes, oh, okay, an unidentified flying object. And he's like, yeah, I guess. I don't know what it was. Yeah. And the news guy goes, unidentified flying object. That's not real sexy. Let's call it a flying saucer. <laughs> And it's like Project Mogul was dropping high altitude, like, fake dummies from, like, a mile and a half up in the sky or something and testing, like, parachutes and all this other stuff. And it, there's suggestions that that was the debris. There's suggestions that it was part of a radar targeting target attached to a weather balloon. And who the hell knows? The pictures of it look like a guy holding some tinfoil. <laughs> and he's naked. And he's, and he's saying, like, look, there's pictures on here that show naked space octopuses. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're coming uh, on to me. <laughs> what do we have for the 8th? July 8th, 1969. Twister. Possibly the most fun game you can have with your clothes on or off. Speaking of sexy. Is, is patented by Milton Bradley. So put your right hand on yellow, your left hand on green, your right foot on red, and your naughty bits on the other red. Me. Or one of the other reds. Good <laughs> luck with that. But Twister, it's been, it's been around since, wow, a long time. Just about 53 years. Yeah. Yeah, that was a staple. I mean, when we were kids, we had that. Everybody had that. Wasn't really fun is, you know, I just have my brother and myself, and right. you can't really spin and play at the same time. That's true. It makes it... You can for the first couple of rounds. Yeah. And then it's like, uh, Mom! <laughs> can you come spin this? I bought that game so you'd leave me alone. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. You get to be like a teenager, and then you you know you start giggle, giggling. You're like, hee hee hee, naked twister, hee hee hee. And then as you become an adult, you're like, yeah, that is totally what the game was invented for. Is the, there a socially acceptable way for me to put my <laughs> on your face? No? Well, let's do. Let's make a game out of that, shall we? Clothed twister is the secondary game. Yeah. All right. Moving on to the ninth, July the ninth, nineteen ninety seven. Oh, I remember when this happened. That was over at your house. Not so much the incident, but the aftermath. Mike Tyson is banned from professional boxing and is fined $3 million for biting the ear, essentially off, of Evander Holyfield during a uh, title fight. Yeah, I remember that. He came out and he said, he's very sorry. <laughs> I'm very sorry for biting off of Andy Holyfield's ear during that boxing match that I was apparently in while I was in, on drugs. I remember watching the fight. The The whole fight, it wasn't much of a fight. It was a lot of defense on Holyfield's part. Uh, Holyfield kept clinching and kept clinching and kept clinching. And then Tyson, who is not renowned for his patience... <laughs> <laughs> got fed up with it and bit his ear off, and he bit it, you know, with a with the mouth guard in, which is doing that takes some bite force. Yeah, I remember when that happened. I just remember you yelling at the TV screen, "You piece of shit!" <laughs> yep. And I was, I, I don't even know if I was yelling at Hollyfeld or Tyson at that no, point because I was like, Tyson. "Get him out of the clinch!" Like, or yeah. Mills Lane, who was the referee. Yeah. Tyson kept trying to pull his arms out and looking at him like, dude, what are you going to do, dude? Like, he keeps, he won't stop grabbing onto me. And and when he, he bit Hollyfeld twice. Yeah. He bit him once and didn't break the skin. And Hollyfeld is like patting his ear and going, hey, he just bit me. And then he's like, nope, just keep fighting. And then he clinched up again. And that's when he bit the ear off. I think it was earlier this year, Mike Tyson uh, got into the edible business 
and was selling ed- uh, you know gummy edibles that were in the shape of a bit off ear. <laughs> yeah, look, dude, you got to lean into stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's one of those you got to wear it like a badge of honor. And it's funny, like I feel bad one laughing at Mike Tyson because he could still kill me. Two, yes. I I feel bad sort of boosting him because like, the guy went to jail. He's like not a great dude. Right. Three. They bit off and ran Holyfield's ear, even though I thought Holyfield was an overrated boxer. That still isn't a reason to bite off his ear. But, like, there's an endearing quality to him in that he's sort of dealt with all of this stuff and continues to stay in public and seems relatively unflappable. I don't know. It's it's weird. Like, I, I find myself thinking he's more like his cartoon character of him on Mike Tyson's Mysteries than him as the real person. He's definitely a very interesting person, like for better or for worse, you know, good or bad, like him, hate him. He's not boring. No. I think hopefully by the time this airs, this the most recent incident on Tyson is when he went all like Kung Fu nasty on that dude on the airplane. Yeah. Um, that that guy had it coming. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, he did have it I coming. I watched that video. Um, there's laws against just beating the holy shit out of somebody on an airplane. And there's also laws against harassing. Both of those gentlemen did some bad stuff that day. That's that's what I'm going to say. No, I, I agree. You know, and uh, you know me, I'm a free speech advocate, but, like, there are consequences, too. <laughs> like, there are times where you have to, like, you know what? I'm just not going to say anything Yeah. right now. Like I said at the beginning of the segment, the, the guy is not renowned for his patience. Right. Don't tease the dog, you know? <laughs> Don't do it. Don't tread on Superman's cake. Don't spit into the wind. Don't make fun of Mike Tyson on a crowded airplane. All right. Uh, July 10th, 1947. The first practical rectangular television picture tube is invented and produced as a TV. Before this, and you may not know this out in the audience, but television picture tubes were round. They were like giant light bulbs with a coating on the inside, what would have been the bulby top part that the electrons bounced off of to make the scan lines for your TV. Right. I remember, I remember seeing, like, really old pictures of really old television sets. And oddly enough, they look more space age than stuff did in the space age. They definitely look like, um, like an, almost like an oscilloscope, which I associate with mad scientists in just in general and or science fiction movies from the 50s. But it looks like an oscilloscope with a picture on it. The problem with that te- the technology with a round screen is it tended to distort as it got closer to the round edges. Right. And you kind of had to look at those straight on, too. You, you definitely did, which is why all those pictures of, like, kids and adults, like, all squeezed together in front of that round screen from the 40s and 50s is so iconic because right. otherwise they couldn't see it. You have to line up wow. single file to watch television. Right, right. Well, this aren't the first kid would, like, absorb all the radiation, so the second kid wouldn't absorb as much. Like, by the time it got to Dad, he was probably safe. Um, it's all cool in the middle and crispy on the edges. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cold on the inside, burned on the outside, like the fish sticks they were eating from their TV dinners. Um, the rectangular TV did a couple of things. One, it expanded the aspect ratio of uh, so that the picture itself was more like a picture that you'd see on a f- movie screen. Because at the time, not all movies were 4-3 aspect ratio, but they were close. Right. There was Cinemascope, and there was some other things that sort of ex- Cinerama that expanded it. But those were specialty theaters that showed those. The 16 by 9 ratio of movies, even in the movie theaters, didn't come until much later. Making the television rectangular also flattened the tube so that you had a wider angle that you could see 
the the images on the screen from if you were sitting in front of it. So now you could put the TV in the center of the room and people could sit around it and still see the picture as opposed to all having to sort of sit directly in front. Mm-hmm. And that became the standard until HD TV became a thing in the 1990s where we started to get flat screens. Yeah, oh, and then oh, remember that, dude? Screens. Remember whenever like a flat screen television was like, <gasps> yeah. You know, yes. I still have, I'm looking at it right now. It's it's in this room. I still have a first generation HDTV. It's a Samsung. To It doesn't even have HDMI inputs. Right. But it was the very first generation high def television. You know, right. you had the uh, the RGB, the three, the three inputs for the red, green, and blue. Yep. And I remember getting that television. The thing weighs a freaking ton. I remember getting that television and plugging in my DVD player and watching Pink Floyd The Wall in, you know, what was considered high def at the time and noticing all the imperfections in the film transfer because you could actually, the quality was so good that you could actually see the imperfections in the, in the film transfer. Uh, you could, you could see the limitations. You can see the limitations. Right. That you end up doubling the number of scan lines it's going to make for, you know, a, a crisper picture for sure. And those first HDTVs were all 720 progressive scan, or 720 inter- interlaced scan. Yep. So it scanned every other line. So 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, whatever, and then 2, 4, 6, 8, 10 at a rate that would make it appear that it was filling it in all at the same time. And then right after that, progressive scan started. Where it would go one, two, three, four, five, six. It was fast enough that it could scan without having to alternate lines. Mm-hmm. And then we jumped over to different tube technologies. So they went plasma, uh, LCD, and then LED. And now there's, I don't even know what they're called anymore. They're like, they have names that are way more organic. All right, let's move on to the celebrity birthdays. July the 4th, 1883, a man by the name of Rube Goldberg, which by the way, Rube is a great name. Uh, Rube was a cartoonist, and he used to draw these really, like, almost like blueprints of machines or theoretical machines that would have all these unnecessary steps to complete very, very simple tasks. So just um, just think of the, the, the board game Mousetrap. That's based on a, on a Rube Goldberg design, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I remember like the ones where it was like to crack an egg and there were 75 different things that happened between the person kicking off the machine and the egg being cracked over a frying pan. Yeah, I really like the modern take on the Goldberg machines where people set up all these different Goldberg devices, so to speak, in their houses with all sorts of like tracks and balls that knock over dominoes that put race cars down tracks and, you know. His name and his his comic literally became synonymous with the, the, the concept of overcomplicating something. Yeah. Rube Goldberg is also used as uh, an adjective. That's a Rube Goldberg device, even yeah. though Rube Goldberg didn't draw it. Right. You know, you're going to Rube, Rube Goldberg this whole thing, and you're making this overcomplicated. So it's also used as a noun. It's really interesting to see that that person's name, because of the, the cartoon that he drew, became synonymous with the idea that he captured in that cartoon, and it never, it never went away. It's still so... I mean, he died in 1970. And it still it still gets used all the time in any manner of description, from describing the plot of a movie as too convoluted and Rube Goldbergian to machine to flip a hamburger, you know, for a contest that's too Goldbergian. It's like it it applies both in the theoretical and the physical at the same time. It's neat. Oddly enough, the wrestler Bill Goldberg was just the opposite because 
All of his matches were incredibly simple and contained two moves. <laughs> All right, next up. July 5th, 1950. Bar band extraordinaire leader Huey Lewis of Huey Lewis and the News. And by the way, somehow, Huey is a great name. Who somehow ended up uh, conquering MTV for a couple of years with incredibly happy, fun, sort of dippy pop music that when you listen to it now, it feels like you're traveling back in time to about 1985 to 1987. Yep. I like Huey Lewis in the news. I, I, I Famously in American Psycho, Patrick Bateman says his first two albums are a little too new way for my taste. Listen, Patrick, his first two albums are awesome. <laughs> Whenever Huey Lewis first came on the scene, uh, I remember the video on MTV called Some of My Lies Are True, which was a great song. And then his follow-up album, Picture This, came out. And that's the one with uh, Do You Believe in Love is on that one. And so is Working for the Weekend. Nope, nope, that's Loverboy. Nope, that was Loverboy. Working for a Living, that's it. Working for a Living is Huey Lewis. And those two albums are both fantastic. And then there was the third album, Sports, I believe Sports, yeah. And then the fourth album was called Four. That's where most people kind of jumped on board with Huey Lewis. But, yeah, no, I, I always liked him. I remember staying up and watching the concert on, remember MTV used to do concerts on Saturday nights? I do. Yep. I remember staying up until like 11 or 12, whatever it was, uh, to watch Huey Lewis and uh, Huey Lewis and the News live on uh, the MTV concert. They always reminded me of the Jay Giles band. It didn't have that roots in like urban blues like Jay Giles does. They ended up sounding similar, but they had very different inspiration, you know. And also, you know, you're talking Jay Giles band prior to Centerfold. Oh, yeah, I'm talking, like, you know, the first couple of records, like, you know, with, like, first I look at the purse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before Love Stinks. Yes. All right, moving on. July the 6th, 1925, talk show host, game show creator, and serial killer extraordinaire, Merv Griffin. Serial killer? Yeah, yeah. All right, so, first of all, Merv Griffin, television producer, legendary, you know, um, I believe he created The Wheel of Fortune. Going on and on and on. But there was a movie with Steve Martin called The Man with Two Brains. And there was a serial killer in the movie called The the Elevator Killer or The Windex Killer. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, it, he gets on the elevator and the, the, the killer is the, um, discovered to be Merv Griffin. Oh. <laughs> and he's like... I, th- I, thought, I forgot that was a plot point in that movie. I was like, really? Merv Griffin? How did I not see the news about that? Yeah. Yeah. You're the Windex killer? He goes, oh, I've always liked to kill, but then I got famous and I couldn't really do it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I totally forgot all about that. Yep. Merv Griffin's talk show used to come on at 4 o'clock every day on weekdays, and that was my father's thing. He used to like watching the Merv Griffin show, and it was either sit down and watch Merv Griffin and hang out with my father or don't watch TV. So I watched a lot of Merv Griffin back in the day. (laughs) I remember that he had a show. (laughs) That's the extent of my memories of Merv Griffin. (laughs) All right, moving on to the 7th. July 7th, 1880, Otto Frederick Rowater, who I'll tell you what he did in a second. Let me just say, without his invention, nothing ever be as good as sliced bread. He invented the bread slicing machine. Aha! It's obviously, it's not like two guys and a knife. It's a machine that can cut industrially baked loaves into... Pre-sliced loaves that can be wrapped and sold as sliced bread, 
which was a huge advance in the commercialization and widespread distribution of baked goods. Yeah. Prior to that, people weren't really impressed with anything. That's right. They'd say, you know what this is better than? And they'd say, no. Like, yeah, I don't really either, you know? I don't know. It's it's better than, I guess it's better than stuff. But then they had a thing to measure it against after after that. I was going to say, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches must have sucked back then. Well, as someone who makes a lot of his own bread, it does save some time having something else cut it. Uh-huh. And you get more uniform slices. You don't get that, like, one one inch slice. <laughs> And then one half inch slice, which uneven bread, it makes Jeff sad. All right, moving on to the 8th, July the 8th, 1951. The uh, lovely and slender and very, uh, very angular Angelica Houston, who most people, I'm going to think, are going to know best as Morticia from the brilliant Adams Family movies from the 90s. She was also uh, in a whole bunch of prestige pictures, too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny that you say that she was in a bunch of prestige movies and all that because my other experience with Angelica Houston, I mean, I know she was in Princey's Honor, but my other experience with her is with a in a not prestige movie called Eating Raul. Remember that movie? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's still an art house film. That's technically is a prestige movie. I don't see that movie getting... <laughs> I see. I see that as like an art, like like you said, art house. But I don't see it as Oscar bait, which is what I consider oh, prestige movies. But I mean, she was in that. She was in uh, that Steve Zissou movie with Bill Murray, Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Oh, that she was, was in Prince's oh, was Honor. In okay. Yeah, she she's the daughter of John Huston, the the legendary film director from the 1950s and 60s, who did the Africa Queen and the best uh, version of Moby Dick. So she's been around in Hollywood and is like a Hollywood legacy yep. uh, star. Has been in the business forever. She's she's easily as talented as her father. A national treasure. All right, next up. All right. And speaking of national treasures, July 9th, 1964, my sister from another mister, Courtney Love, <laughs> born on my birthday. Oh, that's right. July the 9th is Mr. Uh, McLodge Huge's birthday. <laughs> she's the singer for Hole. And she was married to Kurt Cobain. She's she was in some movies and was the first person to really warn against Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. uh, and didn't get the recognition that she deserves for any of that stuff. I think Kurt Cobain's suicide probably eclipsed all of that, sadly, because she's a great actress. She's a very good musician, and Hole's records are awesome. So yeah, happy birthday, Courtney Love. She was absolutely awesome in The People versus Larry Flint. Honestly, I'm not that huge of a Courtney Love fan, and, and I don't like Woody Harrelson either. But I went to see The People vs. Larry Flint because I think Larry Flint is an interesting character, and they were both fantastic in, in that movie. Yep. And it's a shame that she is going to be more remembered for you know, throwing jelly beans at Madonna during a drunken stupor on New Year's Eve and just some of her more outrageous stuff that she's done Unfortunately, she's going to be remembered for other stuff than what she should be remembered for. How's that? Yeah. That's, that's me being diplomatic. And wrapping up the birthdays, July the 10th, 1926. A man who was known as Fred Gwynn, but the world, moreover, is going to know him as Herman Munster, patriarch of the Munsters family. It started his career as uh, the partner to Gunther Tootie. He was Muldoon, I can't remember his first name, on Car 54, Where Are You? Yep. And uh, it's going to start on TV there. And then transitioned over to the Munsters, where he did a dead-on, uh, fantastic, soft, 
hearted, very like emotionally intelligent father. He was probably the most emotionally intelligent father on TV at the time, yeah. Herman Munster. And then had an awesome late career surge with My Cousin Vinny and uh, Pet Cemetery. Yep. Where he came back after not being on TV for 25 years, maybe, mm-hmm. and made a, a, a big splash in Hollywood, cross-genre, comedy, horror movies, and a couple of other things. Great actor. Fantastic actor. No. I remember hearing an interview and somebody was talking about Fred Gwynn. I think it was uh, Pesci. Uh, Joe Pesci was talking about him during the making of uh, of My Cousin Vinny. And he was saying, you would not believe how smart that man is. Mm-hmm. He goes, and you, because you know, everybody knows him as Herman Munster. He goes, but you have to be super smart to play somebody that dumb. I absolutely love the theme to the Munsters. I remember you used to go into like music stores and just play that on the keyboards and stuff like that. They actually put out an album. Like the Munsters put out an album. Not included though. Not included on that album is... The worst song ever. All right, Jeff, what do we got in the canon for the worst song ever this week? This this week we have a special kind of worst song ever that ties back to our earlier discussion of American Top 40. Okay. So if you were a kid in the 1970s, between about 1974 and about 1977, you couldn't listen to American Top 40 and not hear a single from two-person act named The Captain and Tennille. Oh, jeez. And uh, this is, again, this is a weird period in American musical history where two people with two different pianos, one guy with like 17 pianos and one girl with like two pianos, could be an act that not only toured the world, had number one songs, had their own TV show, and like a variety TV show, and ended up there coming out of playing in like restaurants where they got scoped by AM Records to be these, these like humongous stars that are synonymous with the middle 1970s. The song that we're talking about from the ouvoir today is the daggeringly difficult to enjoy Muskrat Love. All right, which, here, here is the clip. And they shear me. Sam is so skinny. And they whirl and they twirl and they tangle. Singing and jingin' a jangle. Float like the heavens above. Looks like muskrat love. You know, whenever you mention this song, I. I kind of like I know this like from perif- like a peripheral. I don't really know this song, so I started like listening to it, and I was like Muskrat Love, and I'm looking up the lyrics. I'm like, you know, that's it's gonna be a metaphor. That's gonna be a metaphor for something. And I'm looking through the lyrics, and no, it's not. Nope. <laughs> it is straight it is up about muskrats. It is straight up about muskrats. I'll tell you the story of how they came to do the song, but I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the song first. Okay. One, it's a song about two muskrats who eat cheese. One proposes to the other. They dance around, and then it sounds like they're having muskrat sex. That's the song. Uh-huh. The song was written by this country guy uh, named Willis Allen Ramsey. He did like country and soft rock in the early 1970s, and it's on his first album, and it's awful. <laughs> and then it was recorded by the band America, who, you know them from the Horse With No Name song? And yeah. The song. And they recorded it, and it's awful. And it's way more awful... I think, than Captain and Tennille, because 
like Captain and Tennille song, where the last 30 seconds of it is synthesizer-based muskrat sex. Right. It's hard to believe that I use that as a sentence, but that's a sentence. On a moog, no less, yeah. The other two versions, the original, which was originally called Muskrat Candlelight, because of the first line of the song. Followed up by Muskrat Finger Bang. Both the America version and the the original version by Willis Allen Ramsey. The last 30 seconds, and it's a three-minute, nine-second song, so it's only two and a half minutes of music. Just sort of them going like, It's like free-form boredom. For 30s, because they can't think of anything. It's friggin' muskrats. There's nothing to sing about. You know? They're in love. There's no cat that eats one. There's no eagle that comes down and swoops and take muskrat Sam and eats him or anything like that. It would be parody if it wasn't already what it was. No. And then the Captain and Tennille, like, heard the song. I guess Tony Tennille heard the song on the radio as they were driving to play. And she goes, I think this is a song about muskrats. Are you listening to the lyrics of this stupid song? And... They stopped and they bought the sheet music and had the exact same conversation that we just did. There must be a metaphor in here somewhere. Nope. <laughs> so they did that as part of their set at this restaurant in Encino where they were the, the main act. They were like the house band. Yeah. And everybody thought it was really funny. So they, they kept adding it to their show. And then when they, they got picked up by A&M, they had a spot on one of their records for one more song. And they got like, all right, well, people like this. We'll put, we'll put it on there. We'll not make a single out of it. We'll just fill the space. So they filled the space with Muskrat Love. And A&M released it as a single without them wanting it released as a single because a couple of stations were playing the album track right. of it. And it was really popular. And it went to number one. They played it at the White House in front of, like, the Queen for the Queen's Jubilee. Yeah, it was for the Bicentennial at the White House, right? Yeah. So that must have been, that must have been Ford, right? Yep, it was at the Ford White House. And I guess uh, from what I what I read is... Uh, Someone said, you know, you really shouldn't have played two songs about muskrats having sex in front of the queen. And she says, well, you know, <laughs> I didn't think I don't think the song is that way. You have to be a pretty messed up person to think that the end of the song is about muskrats having sex. And then I went back and I listened to this song again. And the last 30 seconds of this song, Bill, mm-hmm. is muskrats having sex. Sure so they is. played a muskrats having sex song in front of the queen, which I it induced the captain and teal to be even more than. Just feeling like I've known them for my whole life, though. So a couple of bits about uh, Captain and Tennille. One, uh, the captain, his name is Daryl Dragon. Who the hell gives himself a stage name when you got a name like Daryl Dragon? That name, awesome. Well, it keeps him from having to have... He could wear the hat. He didn't have to wear a cape. Well, what happened was... Yeah, a sword. Uh, What happened was his father was a famous conductor and composer named Carmen Dragon. And... Uh, he didn't want to like ride off his father's coattails. And it's yeah. like I don't think you have to worry about that, dear Daryl. <laughs> Who knows your father? I don't, right? Right. So he just put on this hat and called himself the captain and gave himself that kind of stage name, and that was kind of the beginning and the end of it. He was a touring keyboardist uh, with the Beach Boys for like five years in the late sixties and early seventies. He has a, he has a sister. Her name is Carmen, like the father, but uh, right. she's going to marry She's a lieutenant. Carmen <laughs> lieutenant, right? And he also has a brother named Dennis, right? Sergeant Major. <laughs> he has a younger brother named Dennis who was in this really weird band from the 80s called the Surf Punks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah they do a cover of uh, Come Out of My House. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yes. My relationship with the Captain Antonio goes back to... 
love will keep us together, which I remember hearing, I think, every five minutes for the year that it was on the charts because it was played every time I was going back and forth to the beach with my mom. Mm -hmm. That was right about the time that they started to do TV specials and then they had their own variety show. And every time I hear Tony Tino's voice now, I can I can think back to when I was a little kid in my pajamas on a, like a Sunday night with my two brothers sitting in front of a, a rectangular TV screen that we could all see from different angles. And wow, you could afford that, huh? We could afford that, yeah. And eating, you know, eating popcorn, knowing that my parents were in like an avocado kitchen somewhere just doing monster bong rips while I was watching <laughs> The Captain and Tennille. They had crazy freaking ratings, too. They used to do, like, 30 million viewers, yeah. which was off-putting for the captain because I just watched an interview with them, mm-hmm. like, obviously an old interview. But he was saying, he goes, I'm a musician, and I'm a composer. He goes, I'm not a performer on any yeah. level. He goes, right. being in front of, like, like, 30 million people like that was really unnerving for me. Yeah, it definitely showed, too. I've gone back to watch clips of the, the variety specials. Well, Tony Tennille was gray on camera. Yes. The captain was wearing a, it seemed like a bigger hat and like Elton John quality giant sunglasses for almost everything that he was in. Right. Including sketches and everything, because it was clear he was like not, he was, it was not his jam. He was just not in, into it. Oh, right. Um, yeah, it was a variety show, and they used to hand him what they would call beer jokes. Yep. You know, to say, you know, just like stupid little... 1970s variety show style humor. Yeah, he was so out of his element for that. Yeah, not a good thing for them. That said, of the three versions of Muskrat Love, the one by uh, uh, Willis Allen and Willis Allen Ramsey, the one by America, and the one by the Captain and Tennille, theirs is the least worst song ever of those three worst songs ever. And the one thing that really separates them, aside from Tony Tennille's range as a singer, is that there's a weird like samba beat that they've put into it, which is so different than the other two, that it elevates it enough to make it listenable, even if it sucks. Now, somebody inevitably is asking, well, if the other versions are worse, why did you pick this version? It's because Captain Tennille have a much more interesting story than America, that's why. Yeah, and this is the song that you'll hear if you put on 70s a 70s radio show. Right. This is the one you'll hear. You won't hear America. You'll hear America do that terrible Tin Man song or Horse with No Name 45 times a day. I had no idea that this. America did this song. I didn't, yeah. I didn't Neither you, did I until yeah. today. You know who I who probably did know this song? I don't know. The horrible lead-in to the answer to our trivia question. Oh, boy. The answer we are looking for, young Jeff, is who had the most consecutive number one albums? Most consecutive number one in the United States. Yes. My first instinct is to just blurt out the Beatles. That is and I'm not going to... That's not my first instinct. I didn't say that was my answer. Okay. I'm looking up the answer because I lost the page. The answer, I think, for the most consecutive number one records, I'm going to say it's Diana Ross. Wow. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm not even sure she's on the list there, Joe. The answer to the most consecutive number one studio albums with 11, 11 in a row is uh, your friend and mine, Jay-Z, who I had to look up because I didn't know what songs he did. Not- oh, yeah. I, I, I couldn't name a Jay-Z record if you put a gun to my head. So. Well, uh, I was never going to get that one. Uh, Jay-Z is the uh, uh, 99 Problems and a Bitch Ain't One. I have no idea what that means. If you saw Jay-Z, if you saw a picture of him, you'd definitely know who no, he is. No, I mean, I, I know he's married to Beyonce, but I don't know who he is or what yeah. he sings, or I've never heard a song of his in my entire life. Coming in in second place, a three-way tie, 
with 10 in a row each. Eminem, Kanye West, and your future ex-wife, Taylor Swift. Ah. Yep. So that is going to wrap up this week. We will see you back here in about seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. You can find us and message us on Instagram and Facebook using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Make sure you tell all of your friends about our podcast. Then go out and make new friends and tell them about it too.